is hell. Manufacturing dissent. Since 1996, this is hell. Modern monetary theory is all the rage. In fact, it can send people into a rage about whether it's the most revolutionary economic idea to come around in a long while, the solution to neoliberalism, or it's all a scam, a trick of the accounting ledger that will inevitably lead to runaway inflation and debt. By definition, modern monetary theory describes currency as a public monopoly and unemployment as evidence that a currency monopolist is overly restricting the supply of the financial assets needed to pay taxes and satisfy savings desires. So what does that mean? Well, in practice, apparently, it means we can afford things like not just one, but two COVID-19 stimulus packages. And as neither one has had an adverse effect on the economy, this kind of spending is no longer verboten. Can we now afford anything we damn well please? Is deficit spending not only not a bad idea, but a great way to contribute to a potentially booming economy? Can modern monetary theory finally get us to full employment? And when we get there, can we keep inflation down by taxing the private sectors to reduce spending? And to be honest, I don't think I've ever asked so many questions in the introduction to a show alone, (laughs) ever done, had that many questions in an introduction before. That's how uncertain I am about modern monetary theory. So we'll try to figure out modern monetary theory without getting in trouble from listeners who know far more about it than I do. And we may get to February's power outage in Texas, an outage that was by design, and we might even touch on China as well. When we speak in a few with economist James Kenneth Galbraith, who posted the column Who's Afraid of MMT, which we will be talking with James about today. And we also hope to get to his writing on February's power outage in Texas. Texas frozen by design in his most recent writing on China. China is missing from the great inflation debate, all of which you can find at the Project Syndicate website, project-syndicate.org. And if we don't get to all of that writing today, I strongly suggest you go check out James' writing on a regular basis. James is professor of government and chair in government business relations at the Lyndon B. Johnson School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. Thanks to listener Tony, who wrote to us suggesting James as a guest, saying if you wish to interview a well-established economist outside the modern monetary theory camp, if you will, who is well-positioned to discuss it, you could do no better than approaching James Galbraith. And thanks to John as well, who wrote this weekend after hearing Tony suggesting James as a guest. He says, I'll second James Galbraith, Sterling Fellow, a great guest. James is senior scholar scholar of the Levi Economics Institute at Bard College, which you can find out more about at levi.org, L-E-V-Y. James is a trustee with the group Economists for Peace and Security, which you can find out more about at epsusa.org. James was on way back in 2004 to talk about that group and the Iraq War. He was also on the show back in 2008 when we spoke with him about his then just published book, The Predator State, How Conservatives Abandoned the Free Market and Why Liberals Should Too, an interview we shared on this past Friday's Patreon podcast, which you can hear right now at patreon.com slash thisishell. James' most recent book is 2016's Welcome to the Poison Chalice, The Destruction of Greece, and the future of Europe. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, podcast, live-streaming host, Chuck Mertz, producing today's show. Well, if it's Monday, it must be Jess Lipka. How have you been, Jess? How was your weekend? It was nice, yeah. Um, saw an old friend. Um, was up north, actually. That was cool. Up here on the north side, or do you mean up farther north? No, no, on the north side. <laughs> I love that, up north. Yeah. People always argue with me because I'll say, oh, I'm going up north, and they're like, you know, that's Wisconsin, not Michigan, right? <laughs> I love how you think it's Rogers Park. Yeah. That's really great. <laughs> on Friday's Patreon podcast, I said that my plans for the weekend were to have my sleep repeatedly interrupted, leading me to pass out at random parts and times of the day as had been happening ever since I got my second dose of the vaccine 10 days ago. Instead, I was overcome by waves of depression and the real worst kind of depression, the kind when you have no idea why you're depressed, not only the situational variety caused by stress. And I'm hoping my depression is a side effect of the vaccine. And when you're hoping your depression is caused by a vaccine that is meant to save you from a deadly virus during the pandemic, do you wonder why our show is called this is hell. More importantly than that, 
Jess, let's start with what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, what about this pandemic? Are you going to be nostalgic about next pandemic? (laughs) (laughs) Jeez, it's not going to be the depression. (laughs) Oh, jeez. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can see all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. And thanks today goes out to Jacob and Magnificent Me for going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. When you do, there you can find our This Is Hell t-shirt, tote bag, and stainless steel camping coffee mug, the This Is Hell face mask, trucker's cap, and winter hat, as well as the This Is Hell guide to the 21st century flash drive, which contains dozens of interviews from the first 20 years of the century that have been featured here on This Is Hell, a great way to introduce yourself and others to the show. Thanks again to Jacob and Magnificent Me for going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's uh, question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can tweet it to us at thisishellradio. You can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com, but we must have your answer by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Again, the question from hell is, what about this pandemic? Are you going to be nostalgic about next pandemic? And Jess will be sharing some of your answers to this week's question from hell following James. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell. And Jess has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is chewing raw cabbage or mixing cabbage juice with tomato juice. In Home Remedies to Overcome a Hangover, an article at the Times of India website, it states, The ancient Greeks and Romans placed great importance on the healing powers of cabbage. They would eat large quantities of cabbage at each eat at night before drinking, as this would allow them to drink more alcoholic beverages without feeling the side effects. Perhaps this is why many consider cabbage with vinegar a good hangover remedy. The Times then quotes Dr. M.P. Mani, Bachelor of Ayurvedic Medicine and Surgery, saying chewing raw cabbage helps treat headaches and disturbances in the nerves caused due to, hamo- due to a hangover. Cabbage juice taken with tomato juice works wonders as, as it reduces the craving for alcohol and also helps in metabolism. That makes this week's hangover cure, either chewing raw cabbage or mixing cabbage juice with tomato juice. I think that's just to force you to puke, right? Because I can't imagine biting into raw cabbage. I guess when it's shredded, I guess I like it on a salad. But tomato juice mixed with cabbage juice, that sounds disgusting. Yeah. (laughs) So today on This Is Hell, we are talking modern monetary theory with James Galbraith. Tomorrow, it's diabetes. Then Wednesday, we're on to how the U.S. aided military dictatorships and the ruthless killings of their citizenry during the Cold War. And we're wrapping up the week by discussing the St. Louis City jail uprisings. And we'll tell you more about all of that later on today's show when Jess tells us who our guests will be for the rest of the week. Putting people before profits, which turns out to be a... I'm sorry, did that wrong. Yes, no, that's right. Putting people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible business model. This is hell. When I do that reverse thing, it always kind of screws me up. Last week's question from hell was... What are you doing to improve your social media score? Listener David replied, By praising the Belt and Road Initiative and reporting all unflattering posts about Paramount leader Xi Jinping, especially those that mention his uncanny resemblance to Winnie the Pooh. Oops, now we're all screwed. And uh, then I made a rather glib and flippant remark, meant to be a joke, apparently not a good one, that I wondered if David's remark was racist. Well, David replied, writing, It hurt to hear you say that my response to this week's question from hell was racist. Nothing could be further from the truth. It was a poke at an authoritarian leader. If you Google Xi Jinping and Winnie the Pooh, it returned 79,300 results. This is very much a thing, and it enrages Mr. Xi to such an extent that China banned the movie Christopher Robin. And apparently goes back to 2013 when a photo of Xi and Obama spurred comparisons to Winnie the Pooh and Tigger. Oh my God, you got to be kidding me. Wow. Reporting any such mention would certainly earn real social credits in the country that started such nonsense in solidarity, David. So I apologize to David because it was meant as nothing more than an unscripted joking comment, and I promised to tell David my Christopher Robin story if he accepted my apology. David wrote back saying, Apology accepted, though not required. 
you and the team already give me and the rest of your listeners so much. That's why it was important for me to set the record straight so you would know that was what was in my mind and heart. But sure, bring on the story about Christopher Robin. Thanks again for all you do. So, listeners, you may have heard me tell my Christopher Robin story before, but if you have not, I know the granddaughter of the real Christopher Robin, the son of A.A. A. Milne, who was the inspiration for the Christopher Robin character in Winnie the Pooh. The story Christopher Robin's granddaughter told me was Christopher Robin did drawings of birds, and not just any birds, but dead birds, so he could study them closely without any concern that they would flap around and move during the making of the portrait. All over his home, there were hanging all these drawings of dead birds, flat on their back, deceased, kaput, expired. Upon Christopher Robin's death, his wife, the widow Robin, unhappy with all the death hanging on, on the walls, decided to make them look more lively by turning the pictures upside down. She didn't take them down. Instead, it was now an illustrated, the home had become an illustrated aviary of zombie birds flying with their backs oddly straight. We also got an email from Braden in Newcastle, Australia, who suggested Katan Yoshi, last Thursday's guest on Bitcoin's impact on climate change. Braden writes, I love the interview, Katan, uh, that you did with Katan, but I certainly hope you can get him back on the air to chat about the Texas power outage in February. Please don't sell NFTs in the This Is Hell store. All the best, Braden. Thanks, Braden. And why is it that every way in which we can get rich quick runs counter to the message we've been sending on this show for the past 25 years. Can't there be some way to make easy money that is not bad for society or the planet? And real quick, we also got a guest suggestion from Jim, who writes, just heard a great interview with Dorothy A. Brown, law professor and author of the new book, The Whiteness of Wealth, How the Tax System Impoverishes Black Americans and How We Can Fix It. I think her insights on your show will rock your world. Later, Jim. Thanks, Jim. I forwarded your suggestion to producer Alex and we hope to have Dorothy as a guest on the show soon. If you have any guest or topic suggestions or criticism, constructive or otherwise of This Is Hell, you can email us at chuck at thisishell.com, DM us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio, or you can message us via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Coming up, what the hell is modern monetary theory? Anyway, we'll also have This Week in Rotten History, some of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what about this pandemic are you going to be nostalgic about next pandemic? What about this pandemic are you going to be nostalgic about next pandemic? And we will tell you what's coming up this week here on This Is Hell. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell sanity and talk radio so clearly and sadly. Noam's gone insane. This is hell. To some, modern monetary theory can change the way we think about the economy. It can revolutionize the way we understand money, and it can completely redefine how we understand debt. For others, it's just a way to mount up huge amounts of inflation and unaffordable liabilities. Here to help us have a better understanding of modern monetary theory, returning to This Is Hell for the first time in nearly 13 years, economist James Kenneth Galbraith posted the column, Who's Afraid of Modern Monetary Theory, which we will be talking about with James today. And we also hope to get to his writing on February's power outage in Texas, Texas frozen by design, and his writing on China. China is missing from the great inflation debate, all of which you can find at the Project Syndicate website, project-syndicate.org. And if we don't get to those latter two articles, please check them out at project-syndicate.org because James's writing is always worth reading. Welcome back to This Is Hell, James. Thanks very much. It's great to be with you. I really look forward to having you back on the show in 2031, which is about the time it'll be the next time. I don't know why it took 13 years to get you back on the show, but I really appreciate you being back on. So, Well, I, I must say I listened to your story of Christopher Robin with great interest because when my eldest child was born, uh, a very close friend visited uh, Christopher Robin's bookstore and picked up a copy of Winnie the Pooh with a signature in it. So we have a little connection there. <laughs> That's sweet. You got to tell her that story. That's a, 
I've always been fascinated by that story. So MMT, modern monetary theory, is a highly charged topic, apparently, with advocates who see no wrong and critics who see nothing right with MMT. It's as if you cannot simultaneously be a proponent of MMT while having any criticism or recognition of any shortcoming it may have. To what extent, James, I'm, to that extent, I should say, James, I'm, I'm screwed because I'm pretty assured of, that I'm going to be getting hate mail one way or the other. To you, what explains why modern monetary theory is so divisive and especially on the left? Well, uh, let me, first of all, say a word about my connection to this this group, because as you as you said uh, at the, in your comments a few minutes ago, it's a group with which I'm very friendly, but I, I'm, I'm not a, actually a, a major contributor to it. Uh, and that, I think, does give me a certain amount of perspective. Modern, mon- the modern monetary theory group is uh, uh, maybe what you might say half a generation younger than I am. Um, and why am I sympathetic? Because it has done a very, very good job of articulating and making accessible uh, some basic facts about how the monetary and financial systems work, uh, into which I was initiated uh, in two ways. 15 or 20 years before this group got going, maybe even longer. First of all, uh, at the University of Cambridge, where I was uh, you know, raised up for a year in the company of, of people who had been close collaborators of John Maynard Keynes. And secondly, for a period of years on the staff of the House Banking Committee, where I was responsible at a very young age, improbably young age for the oversight of monetary policy. Uh, when you do these things on the ground and work with the, uh, you know, with understand exactly how the people who are have operational responsibilities um, are think about their their jobs, uh, you begin to understand that uh, you know, that things work in a certain way. MMT has done a very good job of, let's just say, uh, make it, translating the, those that situation, those facts to a, um, a a wide audience who doesn't like it uh, who doesn't like it are the people who are brought up on textbooks which give you essentially fictionalized accounts that are rooted in the way economists uh, wrote and thought oh maybe a century century and a half earlier and essentially have not changed very much since then except becoming more complicated and more abstract and more uh, remote from reality than they were even at that time uh, so we have these two traditions uh, one of which is essentially rooted as i say mmt in the way money and finance actually works and the other one which is rooted in uh let's just say uh late 19th century uh, formal economics, early 20th century formal economics, and in the offshoots of that that were at the University of Chicago in the 50s and 60s. Uh, and these two things are in conflict. Uh, which side is correct? I, I, I do not argue that the MMT people, I do not believe the MMT people, people are have thin skins or are, are impervious to criticism. They could hardly function as 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 scholars and as economists, if they were, you know, I think they've been in fact very tolerant of what have what have been uh, uh, exceedingly intemperate attacks uh, on them over the over over the months and years. So, uh, but people who are really resistant to the to the intellectual competition that they that they have brought into this area. So is modern monetary theory? Is it the antithesis to? Is it the solution? to neoliberalism? It certainly uh, opposed, it certainly opens up policy uh, to uh, a post-neoliberal era, uh, just as John Maynard Keynes opened up policy to a, what you might call post-neoclassical or post-classical era, uh, anti- or post-Victorian uh, era. Uh, that, that and one of the things about the modern monetary theory group is that they are very conscious of their of, of their roots, and their roots are in people who have been, uh, you know, basically arguing the same position, somewhat different words, uh, for now well over a century, beginning with Keynes, uh, with people like Abel Lerner, people like uh, economists like Hyman Minsky. All of these people who are, you know, and in, in, in a few cases, they, certainly the inspirations and in a few cases, the actual teachers 
of the of the people who now group themselves as MMT. Uh, so we're not talking about something that came out of nowhere. It's it has a very strong uh, intellectual, uh, powerful intellectual foundation. We well, yesterday I posted on uh, social media that we were going to have you on the show, and if anybody had any questions about MMT, they could post them. And I got this comment from Justin that I found fascinating because it would leads into one of my very clever questions I was going to ask. Justin writes that modern monetary theory isn't a policy. It's an analytical framework for understanding money. It has things to say about large economies with sovereign currencies, small countries that use foreign currencies, eurozone countries, etc. Read their literature if you want to understand their theoretical lens. MMTers have proposed policies for the United States and other countries based on their analysis, but the policies are not what make up MMT, and the policies have a political bias based on the MMT years personal political alignment so first well i guess my my question then is is modern monetary theory is it an economic theory is it a policy is it a social movement is it a political movement is it all of these well i think your 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 correspondent basically stated it very well uh, uh, what modern monetary theory set out to do uh, is to explain how modern money works uh, and by the word, the word modern here is uh, something to be a little bit uh, wary of because it's directly drawn from a passage in the first few pages of a book that was published in 1930, namely uh, by, by John Maynard Keynes, his treatise on money, where he describes a, the uh, monetary systems that are based upon the issuance of credit by institutions that we now call banks as being essentially the way uh, monetary functions, modern systems have functioned for at least the last 4,000 years. So the use of the word modern here is a little bit ironic. Uh, Pre-modern takes you a pretty long way back into the past. Uh, This is describing how how money is created, uh, by whom it's created, uh, and how it's uh, essentially given, uh, uh, given a value that people are willing to accept. Uh, and uh, this is, as I say, it's, it's neither a new system nor, nor a new theory. So the word modern is not to be taken as a synonym for new. Uh, yes, it's a description of how the world actually works. And when you understand how the world works, that opens you up to certain kinds of policies, uh, which, as your correspondent says, do in fact stem from from you know political commitments. But broadly speaking, the MNT group is politically progressive. It believes, for example, in, seriously in the achievability of full employment. Now, is that a that's a you know a progressive position, but it's not out of the mainstream. It's actually written into the laws of the United States. Uh, as far back as 1945, reinforced in the Full Employment Act of 1978, which I had a hand in, in drafting. Uh, and these things are, uh, you know, they're essentially about how to achieve the goals that we purport to hold as national policy. So from that point of view, I wouldn't put them, I would say they're solidly in a, in a mainstream what is out of the mainstream has been the way in which mainstream economics has really sought to undermine and subvert those goals and to pursue different goals under kind of uh, false pretenses about what they're actually trying to achieve. And you mentioned that in your writing about central bankers, which I found really fascinating. You write, as anyone who has ever been responsible for legislative oversight of central bankers knows, they do not like to have their authority challenged. Most of all, they will defend their mystique, that magical aura that hovers over their words, shrouding a slushy mix of banality and baloney in a mist of power and jargon. How important is that mystique to that power? And what impact do you think the pandemic has had on that mystique? I, I, I wrote those words with the most profound emotion and conviction based upon uh, years and years, almost a decade that I spent organizing hearings uh, with the chairman of the Federal Reserve. Some of them were pretty good. Uh, you know, they were smart people. Some of them were not so smart. Some of them were vastly overrated. And actually, it was an enormous pleasure to poke uh, poke them in the uh, in the ribs a bit, make fun of them a bit, uh, uh, because they were extremely sensitive to uh, having their weaknesses exposed. Uh, so yes, uh, central bankers are just public officials, um, and I think on the whole, 
the American ones are a bit better than some of the others that one finds, for example, in Europe. Uh, and the reason they are is that they have been accustomed over the last half century now uh, to, um, uh, to having to answer questions from an oversight authority, from Congress. Uh, and that's, that's, that I'll, I'll claim as my small contribution to kind of better governance is that it's, I, I was responsible for setting up the framework under which that occurred beginning in 1975. Uh, so, yeah, almost a half a century now. Uh, and that, that has meant that, they, that Amer the American central bankers, first of all, they have to be somewhat responsive to their legislative mandate, and they have to be in a and they have to answer questions that can be posed pretty consistently if there is a determined uh, member of Congress who uh, is willing to, uh, uh, you know, to, 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 to pose those questions. That's not always been the case, but sometimes it has been. Uh, so, yeah. You also meant you were just mentioning uh, the act that you helped work on. You write full employment buttressed by a guarantee of jobs to all who may need them as a goal that I, that's you, helped write into law in the U.S. under the Humphrey Hawkins Full Employment and Balanced Growth Act of 1978, along with balanced growth and reasonable price stability. With occasional successes in practice, this policy objective, known as the dual mandate, has been the law of the land in the U.S. ever since. Just so people understand, if full employment buttress by guarantee of jobs to all who may need them has been the law of the land since 1978, then where's the full employment buttressed by a guarantee of jobs to all who may need them? Well, the, the problem here is that we have not had, uh, we've not really completed the institutional structure that we need uh, to give everybody a job who wants one. Uh, setting it as a goal was an important step. Uh, the uh, making sure that monetary policy and monetary policy authorities understood that this was a goal, that they were not to be, to imagine themselves solely responsible just for uh, controlling prices, which is the case, for example, of the European Central Bank in principle, uh, I think has made them much more responsive to economic conditions. Uh, but it doesn't do the whole job by a long shot. And, and it's some degree when you get full employment, as we did in the late 1990s, and a, a, a pretty close to it, actually, in the period just before the pandemic, it's largely driven by excessive expansion of credit, so it's not a stable situation. What do you do to have stable full employment? Uh, here's where a policy proposal that has been uh, really, I think, rather finely developed by uh, one of the leading MMT scholars, Pavlina Cherneva at Bard uh, College, comes into play. It's a proposal for a guaranteed job uh, uh, provided at the public sector at a modest living wage, uh, and the idea would be that anybody who needs a job could go and find one under the, this authority. Uh, most people would not stay in that program indefinitely. The private sector would come and hire them away. Um, and uh, the, But it would mean that rather than if you're a, a person who's able to work and wants to work, rather than sitting at home in a period of slack when you're when your factory has closed or, or maybe you're in between jobs and construction or in the services section like that, you could go and, uh, um, and get uh, employment, have a stable income, uh, and uh, also a continuous and stable work record so that you then don't lose your appeal to, uh, to, a, to other employers. Uh, that would essentially mean, uh, it would essentially eliminate the problem of, of of mass unemployment as a uh, uh, as a um, you know as a chronic condition of the of the society that we live in would also set a decent floor under wages so nobody would uh, would have to worry about having to work uh, for uh, you know, to cut rates in order to uh, in order to make a living if you needed an income let's say it was fifteen dollars an hour or something like that at the, you would you would be able to get it. Perfectly good, I think, and sensible idea. So does MMT then not necessarily support a universal basic income idea as much as it does a universal basic job idea? That, I think, is, is, is correct, yes. Uh, but the idea of income supports obviously proved to be very important in the pandemic. Uh, but you could, I would argue, against the UBI um, on, on the grounds that, that 
we have a general cultural expectation in the society that people who can work should work for a decent stretch of their of their lives. Uh, that this is part of what people contribute uh, to the um, uh, to the building of the society. And uh, UBI, uh, well, it has I mean, we have we have lots of ways to provide people with uh, with income who are not in that position. Um, they are making it into a kind of universal uh, system of a single cash payment would tend to undermine the whole structure of, uh, of social insurance that we have built up, which works rather well. It would tend to under, social security, for example, is work-based. You, you pay in uh, while you're working and you draw out uh, when you're eligible for retirement. Uh, and this gives the uh, political strength that a UBI program would not have. So I would be, uh, the job guarantee fits well in the, in the general uh, frame of things that we already have. Uh, UBI is, uh, in my mind, a, a, a risky bet. Uh, uh, is, it, is it strictly in conflict with the modern monetary theory approach? I would say uh, I don't see. I'm not sure I see a, 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 a conflict there. But it, what it, what this illustrates is that uh, within the within an understanding of how the economy works, uh, one can one can have differences about what institutional structures are the most appropriate ones. And you write in our day, the voices of modern monetary theory perturb the sleep, not only of present central bankers, but even of those retired from that role. So how much does MMT challenge central bankers authority, which you describe as baloney and a mist of uh, power and jargon? Because, again, uh, listener Jeff, he wanted to ask, is there a downside to complete debt forgiveness? Can't we just keep kicking the burden up to the central bank or the Fed where they just write it off or print themselves more money? Uh, yes, there would be a definite downside to complete debt forgiveness. Uh, we have a system in which loans are made on a contractual basis against a promise to pay. Uh, if you completely un, uh, 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 undercut the promise to pay, uh, then you uh, are really taking a massive leap into the unknown uh, and uh, you're, you're, you're creating for yourself a lot of instability. This is the same reason that you need to have a tax system. And there's a misconception some people have that MMT is saying you can spend indefinitely without ever taxing. This is not true. The purpose of taxation is to ensure that the that the money that people have that they use is something that they are prepared to hold and to value. Uh, if you don't have a tax system that could, that requires you to uh, to earn uh, in the national currency then the most likely thing is that people will dump your currency for somebody else's. That's what happens in a country like Argentina, for example. Um, as a result, you're subject to continuous devaluation, high rates of inflation. Um, that's not something you want. A, a, a solid tax system underpins the value of the monetary system, um, which is not to say that the taxes have to equal uh, spending, and they, uh, in the history of the United States, rarely have uh, and uh, should not, because a growing economy requires a that there be a continuous expansion of, of the means of payment. Uh, one way, one one of the ways that happens is that the government puts more in uh, than it takes out. So one has uh, these things are, uh, if you like, matters of degree. Uh, but MMT gives a clear understanding of, of, of the role of these various elements of the system. So is then, is MMT more than just printing money to give to the public? The public will spend that money and that spending will create jobs. Is that, what else is MMT beyond that? Because I'm trying to figure out a really simple way to explain it to people. Well, and, and what is MMT beyond that? Uh, it is certainly more than that. Um, I mean, it's, it's a description of how the system actually works and what the, what the function of, of, of spending and of taxes and for banks of loans uh, extended and loans uh, repaid actually is. So what MMT explains to you is that when a bank makes a loan, uh, you take out a loan, the banker simply creates a credit in your account, um, which is uh, an asset to the bank uh, and a... Uh, a liability to you, uh, you in turn 
uh, could use that deposit uh, to, uh, uh, for whatever purposes you've agreed on, and then you're expected to pay back over time. Uh, when you pay back, the, the deposit is the original deposits extinguished. And similarly, when a government writes a check, a, a paycheck or a social security check or a payment to a contractor, it's simply telling the bank to credit you with that amount. When you pay taxes, the government simply deducts it. So this is explaining in very simple and very understandable terms how the actual monetary system really works. It's not some mystical stuff that's dropped from helicopters. Uh, it's a system of credits and debits and a double entry system of bookkeeping accounts. Uh, something every business person I think understands and is trained to deal with. Uh, so uh, in that sense, it's, it's, if you like, it's, it's really strange what all the controversy is. Uh, and the controversy has to do with the fact that academic economics is dominated uh, by people who don't understand this at all. Uh, people who got their views of money and banking from textbooks that don't describe the actual system. People who build models, amazingly enough, of the economy in which there's no banking sector and therefore no possibility of a banking crisis or uh, a financial crisis. Uh, and those people uh, are, are baffled uh, and they're also afraid. Uh, they're afraid because if they really recognize what that they're dealing with people who are, if they admitted the truth, which is that they're dealing with people who know the actual functioning of, the, of a capitalist economy better than they do, they would have to start teaching this material in their own classes. And even worse, they'd have to start hiring people in these big bit name economics departments who, uh, who, who, who understand the, the functioning of the system. And that would then mean they would lose control. And that, you know, when you're talking to about academics, uh, never underestimate the importance of, uh, of academic turf as being the, uh, you know, the fundamental thing that, 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 uh, uh, that people in my uh, social group care about. If central bankers are opposed to the modern monetary theory, what impact would modern monetary theory, if put into practice, have on debt and central banker power? Can, can MMT even be pursued considering the power of entities like the World Bank? Well, the World Bank is not a central bank. Uh, do central bankers oppose modern monetary theory? I don't think they do, actually, at least good ones. I think there's a general understanding uh, by people who are um, actually uh, involved in this uh, as to how the system works. I've had these conversations with people who are high-level staff at the Federal Reserve, and when you when you uh, you think of someone like the current chairman of the Federal Reserve, uh, Mr. Powell, I don't think he's got a problem uh, with understanding how uh, m money actually works. Uh, and I can we can actually point you to um, some public statements by by uh, previous chair Ben Bernanke uh, that established that he also understands this well very well. Uh, you know, uh, so uh, people who are who are engaged in central banking are not at least in the United States uh, the problem. Uh, the problem here is people who are uh, you know have outsized influence over economic thought, economic teaching, and economic policy, coming largely from the, from, from, from the academic world and who really don't understand it very well. We also got an email from John who writes, uh, I heard you were going to discuss MMT, and he says, you know about the drunk guy stumbling around under a street light at night. Another guy asks, what are you doing? Looking for my keys. Oh, where did you lose them? Over there somewhere. Why aren't you looking over there? Well, here's where the light is. So when you talk to economists, you often end up talking about money because that's the easy thing they can measure. It's where the light is. In the case of macro, almost all the argument comes down to questions of funding. How are you going to pay for it? And I'm afraid that is also true of the MMT folks. Just to be clear, these guys are a huge improvement on the tendentious establishment people. Is MMT an improvement, but not necessarily the end-all, be-all solution to full employment buttressed by a guarantee of jobs to all who may need them? Well, I'm uh, prepared to uh, 
you know, to to back up my friends who made enormous progress in the discussion of economic issues. And in terms of uh, of, of of the establishment, I'll tell you a little story. I would in two thousand nine or so, I was invited very strangely to a conference at the Council on Foreign Relations uh, to talk about the New Deal. Um, and so I went, needless to say, with pleasure and was the only New Dealer at the conference. By and by, I, I noticed coming in and standing in the back of the room was none other than the former uh, Treasury Secretary, uh, Bob Rubin, whom I had not met. Um, and I, so I said, I, I, I see Secretary Rubin in the back of the room, and I want to let you in on a little secret. And this, he looked at me and everybody looked at The secret is when the United States government wishes to make a payment, the, the Treasury Department writes a check. Uh, and Rubin acknowledged that this, with a nod of his head, that this, in fact, uh, was the case and that I had spilled one of the great secrets of the of the way in which the system functions. Uh, you know, so, uh, yes, the, the, we're talking here about uh, about just simple realism uh, in uh, understanding how how the system actually works. Uh, and that's that's that that's the fundamental contribution that MIT makes. John continues saying that what economists usually do is focus on the resources invested in a project and then give scant attention to the value of the project or its benefits or rate of return. It's one hand juggling. Impressive, but you know two hands are better. And a big reason is that for a few hundred years, the profession has not spent much time shining a light on the return from government spending. They do talk about multipliers, but that's about it. Do you agree with John's assessment? If so, why do economists focus more on expenses than value? I'm not at all sure what all that's about. Uh, the, the, perp- the government has many purposes uh, which uh, cannot properly be measured in terms of rates of return. Uh, I mean, everything from the national defense, which is a legitimate function, although in my view, vastly overdone in the last uh, gen- over the last generation. Uh, social security, uh, social insurance, uh, which is another function which I would have a hard time giving you a, a rate of return on. Uh, and the government has an enormous function in, uh, in providing the, the infrastructure in which we all live, uh, much of which has no uh, anyway, it, it, the, the notion of a rate of, of a rate of return is certainly not a commercial notion. Uh, these things underpin the quality of life. Um, and uh, their, their, their benefits can be measured in lots of different ways, but, but the notion of a commercial rate of return isn't one of them. Uh, so uh, I think it's not, it, it, the commercial sphere has its sphere. Uh, if you're in a, in a commercial uh, endeavor, you know, you're obviously thinking about whether you can uh, pay back your, your loan and earn a profit. Uh, whether the whole thing is worthwhile to you as a way to make a living. But this is not the function of government. The government's function is to create the framework within which, uh, in a free society with a, with a market economy, within which the private sector can, uh, can conduct its business in a relatively secure, relatively stable way. Uh, applying these kinds of metrics, I don't think is constructive. Is modern monetary theory simply a recognition of the benefits from public spending? Because since Dean Baker first appeared on our show way back in 1999, he's been telling us that there's nothing wrong with deficit spending, that the obsession over the deficit by the then Clinton administration was unnecessary, that Clinton's pursuit of a budget surplus means cuts to public services and a prioritization of profits over people. So is modern monetary theory simply the economic theory that supports deficit spending, or is it more than that? Well, I mean, this is the way people have described Keynesian economics, the economics of John Maynard Keynes since the 1930s. And it's, you know, it's at best a very partial uh, description of what uh, uh, of what this is about. What, what, what MMT explains, what, uh, what uh, a figure, a preceding figure like Wynne Godley explained, uh, what Keynes understood, is that when the government uh, runs a deficit, that means that the financial wealth of the private sector is being increased to the same amount because the the government's debt, its bonds, are being taken up 
by the private sector. And that is, those are claims on a future income stream, which private parties value. So that's, again, it's a question of, of, of understanding that the, uh, the double entry bookkeeping that underpins an economic system. And that demystifies the concept of a deficit. The public deficit is the private surplus. What the Clinton people did not understand was that when they ran a surplus for a couple of years at the end of the 2000s, the end of the 1990s, they were draining the private sector. Uh, and ultimately, the private sector quit spending. And you've got the recession of 2000 uh, that, uh, and the collapse of the, uh, of the, of the technology boom uh, uh, in that year. So, uh, again, understanding that these two things are interrelated, inextricably interrelated, uh, gives you a, a better understanding of how you should proceed. We also got a message from Kevin who asked, is modern monetary theory a policy which only, and perhaps only roughly, applies for a case of one country with exorbitant privilege, the United States? I've also seen it said that it could be applied to Japan, Australia, Canada. What would MMT supporters' advice be for, or let me rephrase this question, what would be the impact on other countries who cannot participate within MMT? Well, if you are a country that is uh, dependent upon loans in somebody else's currency, uh, your first task is to try and break that dependency one way or another. Uh, This is what uh, my friends call new development economics, uh, understanding that while trade and technology uh, learning are important, uh, financial dependence is a trap. uh, And then you can look at countries that are not in the position of providing the reserve currency to the world, that don't have the financial position of the United States, uh, that have done extremely well uh, behind uh, the protection of of capital controls, which have given them what we might call effective currency sovereignty uh, inside their own frontiers. A great case of that is China. Uh, And China has not, has, has, maintains control over uh, its own citizens' ability to move their assets uh, out to other uh, other currencies. And as a result of that, the Chinese government uh, decides what it wants to do, and it goes ahead and does it. Uh, and this is why you can see uh, the cities that have grown up in China. You can see the, the high-speed rail network, which is something like 20,000 kilometers built in the last 15 or 20 years. Uh, and you can see... Uh, you know, all the other aspects of a of a, an extraordinarily modern society that were not there 30 years ago. They were not there at all. Uh, I was involved a bit with China in the 1990s when this was just getting underway. Uh, and, uh, you know, the China is a very interesting and important case of, uh, of what essentially a what can be done uh, if uh, a government and the larger economy take the view uh, that uh, the important thing is to, is to decide in materially what you want to achieve and then set forth to achieve it, not being constrained uh, by artificial notions of what the public debt is going to be or what the deficit is going to be. And uh, in your most recent column, China is missing from the great inflation debate. You touch on that a little bit. But I, I wanted to ask you something else I saw about China in the news. On the front page of Saturday's New York Times, they had an article about President Biden's climate plan. One concern the writer had was that with U.S. businesses making fewer goods due to con- constraints on industry's environmental impact under the Biden plan, consumers in the U.S. would need to depend more on goods coming from China. Does uh, does does cutting environment does having more environmental regulations does trying to cut our impact on climate change does that mean that the United States will just be getting more goods from China? Well, I think it, what it what it points to is that these the imperative of having a collaborative approach uh, to climate change because of course uh, you can just have uh, that kind of substitution uh, if uh, but. Uh, but the reality is that the, one of the countries that is most at risk uh, to, of rising sea levels and uh, diminishing water supplies is China. Uh, a good deal of it is of, of its, some of its most important economic territory uh, sits at very low levels next to the sea, uh, and its water supply comes from the Himalayas. So it is acutely conscious of this. There is scope uh, 
uh, for uh, cooperative uh, measures. Uh, and uh, I don't think that the idea that, that, that the Chinese be terribly concerned at this stage of their development about you know, trying to get a catch a few extra sales to the United States. Uh, this is not their priority anymore. Uh, uh, they really do have a priority of dealing with these issues because of the, the future of, the, of what is the largest country in the, in the world is, uh, is very much on the line. And your writing on MMT starts with talking about this mystique that central bankers have. And you posted a column, Texas Frozen by Design, wrote about the February power outage in Texas, which was being blamed, depending on your political position, on a deregulated private sector, or it was caused by renewable energy's inability to provide power for their customers. You write Harvard Kennedy School's uh, William Hogan is credited with designing the Texas energy market. As Texans froze and their water pipes burst, he reportedly remarked that the state's energy market has functioned as designed. Hogan is right, which says a lot about how some economists think. So in combination with banality and baloney, as well as power and jargon, what does it reveal about economists thinking to you when they see a failed energy system unable to provide power to customers, claiming it worked exactly as designed? Well, this was a part of a mythology that you could make uh, a system uh, of, of, public, of, of electrical power a function uh, as a competitive market with freely adjusting prices. Uh, and what happened, of course, the, the story that this had to do with the, with the renewable energy sector is just nonsense. Uh, what happened was that the, uh, the, the, the cold cut off supplies because natural gas producers had not weatherized their equipment. Uh, as uh, supplies were cut, uh, the the uh, system had to balance its load by cutting back on on power. Uh, it cut back on power, amongst other things, to the natural gas fields, which further aggravated the supply problem. Uh, and uh, and then they had to cut off uh, most of the consumers in Texas, uh, who uh, were then essentially deprived of power for three days or so, during which time, in many cases, their pipes froze. Uh, and they were suffered severe damages to their homes, which they ultimately were the where the real cost of this thing was placed was on was on ordinary households who suffered uh, plumbing damage, water damage uh, as a result of the, all of this. It was a major fiasco, a total disaster. And the idea that it worked as design was well simply transferred a lot of money uh, from from the uh, distributors, uh, bankrupting them in important cases. Uh, to the uh, to the energy suppliers uh, who got the benefit of extraordinary windfall prices. And that's what I think Professor Hogan was saying was it worked as design. It was designed so that in a severe crisis, it would f- facilitate a massive ripoff uh, with the uh, with the cost being borne by people who were not in a position to organize an effective opposition. Uh, and yeah, uh, it's a cynical view, but I, I do think that people who consult with energy providers uh, are fully aware of what happens uh, in a circumstance like this, and that they're not uh, they're, 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 they're that uh, that a uh, emergency situation. They know very well what happens in emergencies and who profits from it, and they're not they're they're getting they're getting fat consulting fees uh, as a result of, uh, of 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 having designed systems like this. It's a major major scandal. So, but you're in Texas. To what degree do you think that energy system was imposed upon the people of Texas? And to what degree did they vote it into power? To what degree is government, Governor Perry right when he says that people are willing to in, uh, have this kind of energy system so they can fight against socialism? I think they, this experience in February uh, uh, converted a fair number of people to the advantages of socialism. Uh, they're w- well aware uh, in Texas that uh, we are not a state which experiences cold weather all that often. There are plenty of places in the U.S. Uh, or for that matter, even in, in, you know, in dreadful countries like Russia, where the weather is considerably colder and, the, and yet the heat and the power stay on. So it's not rocket science to design a system that functions to provide power, uh, and to provide heat, uh, and to keep the water systems flow, uh, working. Uh, what's what's a disaster here is that we deliberately didn't do it. We made a decision in 2002 to create this Rube Goldberg system, uh, which effectively uh, 
made made this uh, uh, you know, built this vulnerability into the system. And in 2011, we had we had a freeze, and it was clearly exposed what what the risks were, and nothing was done. This one was that much worse. Uh, will anything be done uh, to prevent it from happening again? Uh, well, I don't know. It remains to be seen. James, one last question for you. We've been speaking with economist James Galbraith, who posted the column, Who's Afraid of MMT? You can find all of his columns right now by going to project.syndicate.org. James, our final question for you, as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience might hate your response. Is modern monetary theory a Trojan horse for socialism? Oh, I kind of hope so. Yeah. Um, no, I. Um, okay, I'll tell you my Trojan horse story. That uh, uh, I, I had a chance to spend some time in 2010 with a uh, present last president of the Soviet Union, Mikhail Gorbachev, and a, confer- a small conference in Italy. And I, I said, I said, Mr. President, when Homer returns. Uh, to tell the story of his uh, our time, uh, he will he will say uh, that the Russian mathematicians rode out of Muscovy in the early 1990s and presented themselves to the gates of Wall Street bearing the gift of quantitative risk management models. They were received with joy. They came inside. They set to work, and in less than 20 years, they succeeded in destroying the whole place. Uh, and so I said, so, Mr. President, not only will you be credited with the fall, downfall of Soviet communism, but also that of Western financial capitalism. And they looked at me and smiled and said, I've been accused of worse. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> wow, that might be the best answer to a question from hell we've ever had. James, I cannot thank you enough for being back on our show. I promise we'll have you back on before 2034. All of your writing has been really enlightening, and I really appreciate you being on the show. I'll try to hang around at least till then. (laughs) I will too. I think it's going to be quite a race. Thank you so much, James. Okay, a pleasure. Take care. All right. Quote from Mikhail Gorbachev there at the end. How about that? Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing. This is hell. And if you like what you just heard, please show your support by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you can find all of our merchandise or by subscribing to our weekly Patreon podcast, which happens every Friday with a new monologue for me and a classic interview unavailable anywhere else online, all at Patreon. Dot com slash this is hell. So go to this is hell.com and click on support or just go directly to patreon.com slash this is hell. Jess, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and please tell us how our listeners are answering so far. This week's question from hell is what about this pandemic? Are you going to be nostalgic about next pandemic? <laughs> I love the next pandemic. That's... Yeah, it's, it's coming. Yeah, it sure is. <laughs> um, Stephen S. Animal Crossing. David Z Corpse Free Gutters That's dark Yikes Um, Ronaldo M That it still snowed in January (laughs) That's a good one Um, Eric T The lack of roving packs of zombies (laughs) Braden S Single digit fatality rate Wow yeah This is getting grim It really is a question from hell this week Alex writes these by the way so don't They're great I know they're great Uh, (laughs) What about this pandemic are you going to be Nostalgic about next pandemic Um, (laughs) Lisa M Kids doing online school at home By the next one they'll probably be conscripted into PPE factory work Wow they do have tiny little hands that are really good for factory work. <laughs> um, yeah, those that, those could be the job programs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, Mark A, two-dimensional Zoom. Uh, Warren L, three days off in a row. Andrew G, the gap of time before Zoom became ubiquitous. Um, and last, Mark C, the way the federal government and our fearless leader responded with swift, decisive action that ultimately kept the fatality numbers below 700,000. <sighs> Man, when Rob Wallace was on our show in March last year and President Trump was saying, I think at that time that there was going to be 50 or 60,000 deaths and then I think he would upped it to 70,000. And Rob comes on our show and says, there's going to be a half a million at the bare minimum, up to a million, 1.5 million. 
And everybody was sending me emails saying, there's just no way it's going to be that bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, all you had to do was get a hellish perspective of pandemic, and it's probably a more accurate perspective. We'll have more of your answers at the end of tomorrow's show. Again, the question from hell is, what about this pandemic? Are you going to be nostalgic about next pandemic? What about this pandemic are you going to be nostalgic about next pandemic the person with our favorite answer to this week's question mail wins whatever this is how merchandise you want the t-shirt the tote bag the coffee mug whatever you can see all that stuff right now by going to this and clicking on support you can send us your answers to this week's question from hell by posting them on your facebook on our facebook page facebook.com slash this is hell radio tweeting them to us at this is hell radio or emailing chuck at this is that's me it's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history. This week in rotten history on April 26th, 1937, 84 years ago today, Monday, amid the destruction of the Spanish Civil War, squadrons of the Nazi German Luftwaffe and the fascist Italian Air Force conducted a joint aerial bombing of the small town of Guernica in an area where the ascendant right-wing nationalist forces led about led by generalissimo Francisco Franco sought to push the socialist republicans out of some of their last strongholds in the Basque region of northern Spain the attacks on Guernica came in waves throughout the afternoon with bombers dropping some 24 tons of explosive and incendiary ordnance on a sleepy town of just 7,000 people. Estimates of the number of dead varied widely at the time and still do vary somewhat to this day, but historians generally agree that several hundred civilians were killed by explosives fire on the day the bombs fell, and that even more died of their injuries in the days that followed. More than half of the town's buildings were destroyed thanks in part to a series of eyewitness reports by a reporter for the Times of London. The attack on Guernica quickly became one of the most... first aerial bombings to gain international attention and provoke outrage around the world. So this was back when there were actual eyewitness reports from actual reporters on the ground, on the front lines of war, which is something we do not do today, apparently, as I've never read a New York Times report from the front lines of the war in Syria, Yemen, Somalia, Libya, neither the most recent Iraq war, the Afghanistan war, the war... The previous war in the Persian Gulf, any of the battlefronts of the Forever War. <sighs> Aside from bolstering the rise of fascism across Europe, the bombing of Guernica marked a stage in the transition toward the widespread use of aerial bombing as a war tactic that exacted a high civilian death toll, thus helping to render antique certain quaint old school taboos against, you know, the killing of women, children, and elderly men during wartime. Purposeful killing. Yes, this was back in the good old days when world leaders figured out that killing civilians, essentially legitimizing international, intentionally committed war crimes, could be a military strategy. The bombing also became a subject in the work of many poets and artists, most famously in the horrific large mural by Pablo Picasso. Now, many believe the image in Picasso's 1937 painting of the horse being run through with a javelin is Picasso predicting the eventual fall of Francisco Franco. He was right. Francisco would fall, but not until he died in 1975, 38 years later. And as you've seen in Spain lately, his brand of nationalism is all of a sudden popular again. And in Rotten History... April 30th, 1966. 55 years ago this Friday, the folk singer Richard Farina, known for political protest songs like Birmingham Sunday and also for being a brother-in-law to Joan Baez, who knew, was celebrating the publication of his first novel, Bend Down So Long It Looks Like Up To Me, which had been released by Random House just two days earlier. It also happened to be the 21st birthday of his wife, Mimi Farina, with whom he had been performing and recording as a popular folk act. So everything's going great for the Farinas, but this is rotten history, and you know that means things are going to go bad, and go bad real fast. So Richard Farina was in an especially festive mood. After a lunchtime book signing at the Thunderbird Bookshop near Monterey, California, Farina made it to a surprise birthday party he had organized for Mimi. Just as the afternoon was edging into evening, he spotted a red Harley... A red Harley... Davidson motorcycle parked nearby and he persuaded its owner to take him for a spin 
told you this would not end well. This is rotten history, after all. Off they roared down winding country roads, taking right turns, left turns, tight turns, well above the speed limit. Unfortunately, Farina, seated at the rear, was inexperienced at riding on motorcycles, and he failed to lean into one of the turns. A huge mistake. Yes, even being a passenger on a motorcycle, you have to learn how to ride. The bike was thrown off balance, and they wiped out, crashing into a barbed wire fence. Though the bike's owner was badly injured, he would survive. But Farina was killed at the age of 29. His only novel with a foreword written by his old college friend, Thomas Pynchon, would go on to become something of a cult classic, read by several generations of college students. So... If you're a college student and you're looking for something to read and can enjoy fiction despite knowing the author died when a motorcycle he was riding crashed into a barbed wire fence, may I suggest Been Down So Long It Looks Up To Me by Richard Farina. That's Rotten History and this is Hell. Just please tell us who is on tomorrow's Tuesday's show, also beginning at 10 a.m. Chicago time here at thisishell.com. Tomorrow, we'll be talking to James Doucet Battle on his book, Sweetness in the Blood, Race, Risk, and Type 2 Diabetes. That's such a creepy, creepy book. And the starting of it, when he talks about uh, people drinking sugar water and how Coca-Cola is related to giving slaves energy, the whole thing is just really, really disturbing. What about Wednesday? Wednesday, um, we have Vincent Bevins on his book, The Jakarta Method. Which is really awesome. It's all about how the United States imposed imperialism all over the world by getting dictators to crush any movement that seemed to have anything to do with democracy. Finally, who is on Thursday's show? Fully booked. Um, Look at that, huh? <laughs> we've got Adolfo Minka on his article, Spirit of Self-Emancipation Continues to Rise at the St. Louis City Justice Center for Black Agenda Report. There's been a lot of protests at the St. Louis City Jail, so we'll be talking about that. And Jeff and the Moment of Truth as well. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. God, I hate saying live streaming host. It makes me want to urinate. Producing today's show is Jess Lipka. Thanks to our guest, James Galbraith. Thanks to Jess Lipka for producing. Thanks to Alex for booking today's guest. And thanks, Ronaldo Magaldi, for Rotten History. This week's Hangover Cure is chewing raw cabbage or mixing cabbage juice with tomato juice, which sounds disgusting. We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>